0: Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and today I'm joined by... Steve Osden, Washington Editor.
1: and Kaj Tesman, Senior Editor.
2: And Paul Bonanos, Associate Editor.
1: Today,
0: Steve is going to speak to why anyone should care about Katie Porter's Biopharma M&A Report, Killer Profits. Karen tells us what we need to know about FDA's plan for regulating new variants and how dealing with COVID-19 variants is and is not like dealing with the flu. I'll follow up on my story as to why anything like the GameStop phenomenon is unlikely to sweep up small biotechs despite the bolus of short-friendly stocks in the industry. But first, my colleague, Paul, on last week's IPO spree. It's one of the busiest I can remember in following the industry for the past 15 years. As a group, 10 companies went out on NASDAQ, together raising nearly $1.9 billion. Paul?
2: Yeah, that's, that is extraordinary for sure. It doesn't mean the same thing will happen every week. I'm sure it won't happen this week, but it is a symptom of how well-stocked the queue has been biotechs lately that are ready to go public. And the fact that six of them had double-digit gains at week's end, one of them doubled in value the first day, that was a blood cancer company called Boer Biopharma, tells you there's plenty of investor appetite for biotechs this season, particularly in cancer. And I say that, particularly in cancer, because five of the six were cancer companies. The other one, Farvaris, is a Dutch company developing treatments for hereditary angioedema. But the five were Bore, which I just mentioned, Immunocore, a UK company that's more than a decade old, Bolt Biotherapeutics, which is making antibody conjugates, Sensai, which is using bacteriophages to develop cancer therapies. And then the one that attracted the most attention, which is Sana Biotechnology, And late Monday, we've just seen the news that it's become the biggest IPO in history by a pure play biotech and for a preclinical company at that.
0: What's so extraordinary about them?
2: Unlike a lot of biotechs that are formed based on an innovation from an academic source, maybe an insight into biology or chemistry, or even just an asset or set of assets, SANA has put together a collection of tools, licensing or buying them from a few different sources that can be used to create gene and cell therapies, both in vivo and ex vivo ones. They've said that their goals are to control or modify any gene in the body, replace any damaged or missing cell, and improve access to cell and gene-based medicine. And although nothing's reached the clinic yet, they've got 11 programs going simultaneously. The company's still quite young. It was formed in 2018. And how it's worked is its VCs, most notably Arch Venture Partners and Flagship Pioneering, had put in more than 700 million in private funding And with that, they gathered some pieces. The biggest piece was something called Cobalt that Flagship had already invested in, but then they bought a couple of small spin-outs from the University of Washington and the University of Rochester, licensed some technologies from Harvard, from UCSF, from WashU and St. Louis. That's given them ways to do a a few different things and create a very broad pipeline. And and moreover, they brought together a management team with experience at Juno, the CAR-T company that made a big splash several years ago. Now, Juno went through some stages. It went public, was acquired by Celgene. Now it's part of Bristol, but it's worth noting that just Friday, their first product finally gained approval. It's called Brianzi for B-cell lymphomas. So between the well-known VCs, the management team, the toolbox they've assembled, and their pipeline, Sana has a story investors have found compelling enough that they were able to raise $588 million last week, which was just short of Moderna's total, $604 million or so from their 2018 offering. And that was previously the biggest one. But Sanos shares gained in value across their first few days of trading, and their underwriters had the option to buy more shares. They did late Monday, and that brought the offerings total to more than $675 million, making it the largest in history and surpassing Moderna.
0: Karen, I know translational technology, new modalities at your wheelhouse. Any of these 10 companies stand out to you?
1: Pretty interesting to me is actually when I first heard of Sanos there's some of My work looking into the University of Washington and the Institute for Protein Design there and the cool sort of synthetic biology toolbox that they've been building. Things like really innovative switches on how to control cell activity. While it's not 100% clear yet how... That will be incorporated into their pipeline. It's something that I think is, is broadly applicable across all the different cell types they're going after. And I'll be really interested to see how that manifests once they're disclosing more about what their assets actually are.
3: I'm really intrigued by one other thing that you mentioned. One of the companies is focused on hereditary angioedema. To me, that really highlights what's really special, I think, and important about biotech, that you have companies that are going public that are focusing on such an important need, but a very small one. And, and I remember the first time I ever heard of this disease was in 2009. I was at an advisory committee meeting and there was the wife of an HAE patient who testified. And she said that her husband slept with a steak knife by the bed every night. And she asked him why. And he said, oh, because if I get an attack, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to open up my throat with it. And she said that it actually happened and she described it. It was a horrific scene and I've, I've never forgotten it. And it, it, it's just amazing to me that since then, there've been a number of drugs that have been developed to help people with it, but I don't know, it, it makes it all real uh, to me. What sometimes what the industry does seems abstract, but when you actually encounter people who who have to deal with these things and who are helped by the products that the industry creates, it makes it much more real.
0: Wow, Steve, that's definitely a sobering story there, and it impresses upon me just how important what many of these companies are doing, which these new companies that are now public, Paul, they could start to know how public biotech CEOs feel. One bane of the biotech CEO's existence is short traders it keeps them up at night. And whenever there are additional blips in the market, such as a flash crowd jumping into a company's stock, that can create quite a bit more stress for the biotech C-suite. Now, day traders have long used Reddit forums and chat rooms and Twitter to talk up biotech stocks. We recently saw these day traders take on the Wall Street shorts in a stock called GameStop which is now a household name it's in every mall they sell everything from PS5s to Funko Pops i admit that i need to take my son there at least once a week to buy something but they took this company on and the stock started the year at about $17 shot up to 300 bounced around like a ping pong ball for a few days and now has slid down into the 50s or so. Um, A lot of people got burned. Uh, A lot of people made some money. Last week, we started seeing some industry watchers say, is biotech next? And so I gave Brad Longcar of Longcar Investments a call to ask if he thought anything like this could happen in biotech. And he really didn't think it was likely. He pointed out that GameStop and AMC, the movie theater chain, these are household names, and these have become the easy stocks for people to rally around and buy up. He just didn't really see it affecting biotech stocks for anything more than a couple of days. I checked out the Reddit thread where these guys are talking. It's guys with handles like 101 using the hashtag bio war and rallying cries like the shorts are about to get burned. Brace yourselves if it does happen. Jeff,
2: there has been some evidence. Certain biotechs have been affected by short squeezes. There was a company, Veer, that's developing a COVID-19 program and certain antivirals for other infectious diseases that had a very unusual round trip a few days ago. Their shares had been trading in the 40s. They did have a bit of news, but probably not enough to drive them up to $141 where they peaked on January 27th before settling back into the high 50s. They're trading around $69 Monday morning. That is evidence that there has been some unusual activity and-
0: Definitely true, Paul. One thing that Brad pointed out to me the spread between the XBI and the IBB, which is dominated by larger caps, XBI being an equal weighted index. So you can see how mid to small caps are trading. The spread was about 4%. So the XBI closed last Monday at 4.4% in the IBB. Was up 1.3. And it's very unusual for that much of a spread. So it suggests greater activity in these small cap names. No doubt because the likes of fat Brad Pitt are saying things like, you need to get into Orthocell right now before this stock blows up. We'll see what happens. I think Brad's point was that a short squeeze for a little bit could happen, but there's no way a company such as. OrthoCell or Cassava or Veer could attract the attention needed for a sustained run on the stock.
1: By Brad here, do you mean Brad Lankar or Fat Brad Pitt 101?
0: uh, I I can
3: tell you that Brad Lankar is not Fat Brad Pitt 101.
0: (laughs) (laughs) He's always delivering the 101 on Twitter, and he certainly straightened me out on this issue. These just aren't household names. Biotechs have unfamiliar names, and compounds. They're developing compounds for diseases whose names are not part of the dinnertime conversation. I think it could be challenging to rally around these. Let's shift gears here to M&A and Katie Porter's report. Steve, what have you been hearing? I talked about this on
3: the podcast last week, and then I, I thought about it a little bit more, and I wrote another story. Basically, I tried to figure out why Katie Porter, who She speaks in very plain terms and is famous for her whiteboard, but it's clear that she's very intelligent. She usually knows what she's talking about. How did she get so much wrong in her report and and why does it matter? And here's what I think. I think that she and her staff don't understand how the biopharma ecosystem works, but they do have a good understanding of how tech works. And they extrapolated from the tech world, in which predatory acquisitions are a common tactic and a real problem The Facebooks and Googles and Amazons of the world gobble up small companies before they can become competitors and nothing is ever heard again from those companies and their technologies. So they extrapolated from that to biopharma, where acquisitions are the lifeblood that makes progress possible. So then there's a question, why does that matter? And I think it matters for two reasons. One reason it matters is in part because she could persuade Congress to put provisions into legislation that would make biopharma M&A more difficult, and that would be a problem. But I think even more, the, the lack of understanding of how biopharma works is going to be a problem going forward. It's critical to have members of Congress and people in the Biden administration understand how biopharma works so that they avoid unintended negative consequences for a whole variety of policy and legislative decisions that are going to be coming up over the coming year or two years. The industry and the patients who rely on it, they need a basic level of understanding from Katie Porter and her colleagues of how the industry works and how it creates value for patients. I think that you can have a debate about drug pricing, you can have debates about any number of issues, but they should be based on a common set of facts and an understanding of how things really work rather than just imagining that the biotech and pharma world is the same as the tech world because it isn't.
1: And I think there's a role here for regional trade organizations and companies, you know, she's just a Southern California congresswoman, that's an area where there's a lot of biotech and I think there's there's the national trade organizations that make their case, but I think there's really a role for local companies and organizations to have conversations with their congress people as essentially small businesses in, in their constituency and play a role in educating, doing that education as well.
3: I think there's also, it's really important for it to come from patients and patient advocates and patient representatives. Members of Congress are going to take it a lot more seriously when they hear about things from people who don't have a vested financial interest in the outcome, but have a personal stake in it because they want to see medicines developed. It's encouraging, I think, that Eric Lander's in the cabinet. He's somebody who understands science, he understands medicine, and he understands business. He understands the biopharma world and the life sciences industry in a deeper way than anybody else who's ever been in a comparable position in any administration previously.
0: Well, that's certainly music to my ears, Steve, and I know that's been elevated to a cabinet seat. The post that Eric has now was not a cabinet level position previously, which suggests that science hopefully is in the front seat in this administration. Let's stay with Washington It's really tough to do one of these pods without speaking to COVID. So here we are again. Karen, last week you wrote about FDA's plan for regulating new products to address new COVID-19 variants.
1: What did you find out? So Janet Woodcock put out a statement on Thursday and then followed up with a briefing. Basically, we should expect in the next couple of weeks that there will be guidances that come out for developing vaccines therapeutics and diagnostics, adapting authorized products to account for and go after new variants, And I focus on the vaccine one because it's the one where the development path is the most difficult. The trials to get a first product approved need to be so big. It's just a much harder development path. So there's a lot of interest and anxiety about what that's going to look like to get updated versions of vaccines, be they multivalent replacements that go after the old variants and some new ones. Or boosters that you layer on on top of the existing product and adds immunity against new variants. The one thing, and they've been making this clear for a while, but it was very formally stated on Thursday, was that they really are trying to make this efficient and expedited. They're not going to make companies start square one. But then there's sort of a devil in the details about how exactly do you go about this? What level of evidence might be required? From an immunogenicity standpoint, and maybe what kind of post marketing real world data might be required to support it. And so they didn't get into the details yet, but these guidances will be coming out in the next few weeks. That's something to look out for. Another thing coming out in the next few weeks to look out for is there will likely be some communications from FDA and NIH about correlates, the work they've been doing on correlates of protection. Basically, what immune signatures are most associated with protection from COVID-19, either in response to natural infection or, or in response to vaccination. And that, that piece will be really important, I think, in charting a path for products, vaccines against new variants. And what Janet Woodcock said is, whatever the best understanding of of protection is, at the time when the new variant vaccine is being evaluated, is, is will be used. But we should be getting more clarity on that in the next few weeks.
3: And that's important for a couple of reasons, right? One, because It's not going to be feasible to do placebo-controlled experiments when you've got active vaccines out there. And two, because we can't wait, right? There's going to be an urgent need to get these done as quickly as possible. Did any of your reporting give you any insight into the timelines? How long is it going to take to actually get either multivalent vaccines or vaccines that are boosters that are aimed at particular variants onto the market? Because in the past, I've spoken with Paul Stoffels at J&J. Talzax at Moderna, and they gave an answer and they said, well, it would take about six weeks to de- develop a new or to invent a new vaccine that's targeted at one of the variants. But there's a long way to go from that to actually having something that you can mass produce and put into people's arms, I would imagine.
1: Sure. So what I've been seeing based on what companies have been saying along the way, Novavax, for example, is that it's likely that we might see some candidates against new variants being tested in people. As soon as next quarter. And then in terms of what's the path to getting those actually on the market, I think that'll depend a lot on the contents of this guidance, which we'll hopefully see in the next two or three weeks.
3: So it's a race. It's a race between being able to develop vaccines that are targeted at these new vaccines, at these new variants, and manufacturing them and getting them delivered, and the virus's ability to continue to mutate and create variants that are going to render vaccines less effective.
1: Yep. Whole thing's been erased and hasn't let up.
0: Year two. Come on, scientists, do your thing. That's all we have time for this week. All of our podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Music for all of our podcasts is provided by Kendall Square Orchestra, which connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. Next Monday is a holiday in the U.S., so we will catch you again next Tuesday. Thanks, folks.